0: Hi, this is Dr. Joe Rigney, author of Live Like an Arnion, and you're listening to Pints with Jack.
1: Out of the darkness of my life, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 48. Tolkien's faith. After hours with Dr. Holly Ordway. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints for Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. This episode is being posted on September 21st, meaning that tomorrow is Hobbit Day, commemorating the birthdays of both Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. These are, as I'm sure most listeners will know, characters from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings books by the Oxford inkling J.R.R. R. Tolkien. This, therefore, makes it a very appropriate week to discuss the latest book from Dr. Holly Ordway, Tolkien's Faith, a Spiritual Biography. And that's why I open today's episode with that quotation from one of Tolkien's letters, where he speaks about the Catholic devotion to the Eucharist. Our guest today is a former guest of the show. Dr. Holly Ordway is the Cardinal Francis George Professor of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute and she is Visiting Professor of Apologetics at Houston Christian University. She is the author of several books, including Tolkien's Modern Reading, and the book which we're discussing today, Tolkien's Faith, A Spiritual Biography. Dr. Ordway actually also lives a couple of miles from my home, so I can personally assure all those listening that she brews a mean pot of tea. Dr. Holly Ordway, welcome back to Pints with Jack.
0: It is a pleasure to be on. <laughs>
1: Well, I heard that you've got some fun plans for Hobbit Day this year when this episode is released. Uh, How are you going to be celebrating Bilbo's birthday?
0: I will be celebrating it by actually giving a keynote at the Franciscan University of Steubenville's Tolkien Conference. So they're doing a big 50th anniversary Tolkien Conference, and I get to talk about Tolkien to a whole bunch of Tolkien enthusiasts. And I don't quite know all the details of the schedule, but I'm assuming that there will be lots of food involved at various points. I at least want to have a second breakfast, so it will be very, very good.
1: Wonderful. Well, before we toast, I actually also wanted to say that I've recently been enjoying another of your books, an annotated edition of the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. And listeners might remember that back in season two, I shared one of my favorite poems by Hopkins, which is called The Habit of Perfection. So I just wanted to say... I've been really enjoying the book, and I've actually been reading it to my son uh, over breakfast. So as he's been eating and spilling his cereal, he has also been listening to the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins.
0: Can never start them too early.
1: Indeed, indeed. And of course, at breakfast, I always have a nice cup of tea, and I'm enjoying one right now. So for our toast, I'm going to be sipping on a strong cup of Yorkshire gold. What are you drinking?
0: Uh, Just water this time, but in a nice William Morris mug, which I think Tolkien would approve of.
1: (laughs) Well then, the professor. The professor. Well, let's begin with the most obvious question. Why does the world need yet another biography of J.R.R. R. Tolkien?
0: Well, that is an excellent question. And the answer is that there is no biography that does what this biography does. Yes, there are biographies of his life overall, but as yet, until this book, um, there has been no full treatment of his spiritual life. There's been the occasional article that delves into his his life as a Catholic, um, but there has been nothing, nothing whatsoever on a sustained level exploring what he believed and how it it shaped his life, his context, his beliefs. And indeed, what we get from the existing biographies is a sort of limited um, and often faulty picture. There's the impression in some of the biographies that his faith was kind of compartmentalized. I mean, Raymond Edwards' biography of Tolkien, for instance, literally relegates all discussion of Tolkien's faith to the appendix. I mean, literally compartmentalizes it. And Carpenter takes the approach that, although it was, he acknowledges the importance of Tolkien's faith, he attributes it to an emotional attachment to his mother. And that has been assumed to be accounting for Tolkien's faith in most of the biographical accounts. And there's been some really good work on other aspects of Tolkien's life, um, like John Garth exploring the Great War, Dana Glyer exploring his interaction with the Inklings. But these are topics that are on, on different lines. They naturally don't address his faith. And so there, there has been all this material that has simply been unconsidered and not looked at as a whole, and not looked at in context and chronologically and in depth and and that's what Tolkien's faith does.
1: Mm. It did strike me when I thought about that question that many of the biographies seem to have influenced the movies because in the 2019 movie Tolkien, his faith was treated in a very similar fashion, it's like mostly in passing and seemingly not particularly essential.
0: Yes. And it's a, it's a real shame because that's simply inaccurate by Tolkien's own account repeatedly, over and over again, publicly, privately, in letters and interviews, he says again and again how important his faith is to him. He identifies himself as a devout Catholic. Um, He speaks of himself as a Christian. He talks about the Christian influences on his writings. And his friends and his family, when I started delving into looking at the interviews, looking at their recollections of him, over and over and over again, they're all saying... He was a devout Christian. This was important to him. This was central to him. This was absolutely a central part of his identity. It was who he was. And when someone's faith is that important to them, it has an impact on their work. It has to. And that really is the first reason why I think it really matters to look at his faith, because he himself identified this as a fundamental aspect, the fundamental aspect of his character, of everything he did, and so by his his own account, it was really important. So if it mattered to him as much as that, it's worth looking at. It should matter to us, hmm. and we also just haven't had a chance yet to look really at his context. What was his environment as an English Catholic Christian in the early twentieth century, especially for American readers? This is a very different world, a very different context, and it's incredibly illuminating when you start to understand that context. There's so much in the letters, for instance, that even I, you know, who've been reading Tolkien for thirty odd years, just pass over, or it used to just pass over, um, references to people, references to scripture, references to various religious things he was doing. You skim over it because you don't have a context to to establish what it means. But when you start to look at how it all fits together, it paints a very different picture and one in which you see what a difference his faith made in everything that he did.
1: Hmm. And one of the things that I like about your book is that you explain everything as you go along. So if you are a non-Christian or a non-Catholic, you explain all of the references as you go. Yet, as a cradle Catholic, I also didn't find it tedious. It, it wasn't. It wasn't belaboured or boring as you were explaining that because you're explaining what this religious practice or belief uh, was, and also what it meant to Tolkien as you go through his story.
0: That's something I'm glad to hear, David, because it was very important to me. Because you know, Tolkien's readership includes an enormous range of people, from cradle Catholics like yourself to people who are not Christians and have no interest in Christianity per se, but they love Tolkien. And I wanted to make this aspect of his life accessible and comprehensible and meaningful. So I don't assume anything. And there's even a glossary in the back with terms. Why why should I assume that people know, you know, what any of these terms mean? So I've I've got that glossary. And even as you, as you noted, even for you know, readers who have grown up sharing the Catholic faith, even in your case, you know, also being English, there's a lot that is distinctive to his time and the specific culture in which he was living and the spirituality that he grew up in. And those are, those are again, things that you wouldn't know. How would mm-hmm. you know about um, the, the influence of the, the Congregation of the Oratory St. Philip Neri, which is a huge theme in this book? And I'm guessing that probably most readers of Tolkien don't know what that is, but it's hugely important.
1: And even English Catholics wouldn't know much about it either. I certainly didn't know much. I could have have maybe written you a postcard about everything that I knew, but that would be it.
0: (laughs) And one of the things that I really enjoyed doing in writing this book um, is trying to get as close to Tolkien's experience as was humanly possible. So obviously, going to his letters, his interviews, um, things like that. But also, for instance, looking at the actual prayer books that he would have used, looking at the texts of the Mass as he would have encountered them in 1916 in England. His translations, of the the English translations vary. The way it's presented vary. Um, Really looking in depth at what editions of the Bible did he use? um, How was that shaping his quotation of the Bible in, in his letters? And there are so many interesting things that came out of that, from that really getting down to the details of what did he see and what did he read and what did he do?
1: Well, that actually very nicely transitions to the next thing I was going to ask about, because my wife and I have had the privilege of hearing about your adventures in researching this book for the past year or two. Uh, But would you mind sharing with our listeners what was involved in producing this book?
0: Well, lots and lots of reading and research, um, and it overlapped with my research for Tolkien's Modern Reading, because in that, in Tolkien's Modern Reading, I set out to trace Every instance of him reading anything was published after 1850. And that meant going through every letter, published, unpublished, every interview, everything that that I could find to see what he'd been reading. And as I was doing that, I was finding all sorts of interesting tidbits about his faith. But it didn't fit in Tolkien's Modern Reading because that book was about a different topic. But I was sort of setting them aside and and saving them. And so I'm getting this larger and larger pile of things. Um, And so that was part of it. And then a lot of Tolkien's faith came out of the fact that I've simply spent a lot of time in the same places that, that Tolkien was. I have got the great privilege of spending a lot of time in England over the last decade and a half, um, worshipping in many of the same churches that he did, St. Gregory and St. Augustine on the Woodstock Road, where he was a parishioner for 20 years um, at St. Aloysius, which is now the Oxford Oratory, although it wasn't in Tolkien's day getting to know Oxford, getting to know that environment, going to Blackfriars, going, you know, and then also making visits to Birmingham um, and having the privilege of looking at the Tolkien archives there. So there was on-the-ground experiences. And I think that this really helped me bring some texture and, into the book because I've been to these places. I have, I've even sat in the same pews that Tolkien sat in in some of these churches I've been there and seen what it what it is like. So, what would it have been like for him? And then going into the archives, hours and hours. Um, for instance, in the Oxfordshire History Centre, looking at photographs of the interiors of these of these buildings, what did it look like in Tolkien's day? In some cases, almost the same, which is really remarkable. Um, and in finding some really fascinating things, one of the photos published in the photo gallery is a never before seen image of the actual attic chapel where the Catholic students worshiped when Tolkien was an undergraduate. Um, and it's very specific. There was a certain time frame when he was an undergraduate that they, they didn't have much space, they didn't have much money, things were in disarray and the only place they could have mass as, as a chaplaincy was literally an attic in a building on St. dates. And now you can see what it looks like, because I found a photograph of it from that era as Tolkien would have seen it, and it's in the book.
1: And I do want to underscore that photo gallery, because as with Tolkien's modern reading, your photo gallery was beautiful and extensive. It's like you cranked it up to 11, though, on this book. There's even more pictures, and it really does give you a feeling, a sense of place for what you'll then tell us about in the text of the book.
0: And I'm glad because I did I did ramp it up to to eleven um, or twelve or something. And I'm so grateful that my publishers let me do this because it's it's forty pages. There's more than seventy two images in it. Some of them never previously published. I have several that the Tolkien Estate granted me permission to use, for which I'm profoundly grateful. And It lets us see the places that he worshipped in, the places that were important to him. Um, It lets us see the faces of his friends and his colleagues. It allows us to kind of walk with him in a way that I think is is important.
1: Hmm. Well, let's talk about the text itself, because the first thing I think readers of your book will find eye-opening relates to Tolkien's mother, Mabel, and her conversion from Anglicanism to Catholicism and really the realities of life for Catholic converts in the early 1900s. Would you mind just sketching that out for us? It's
0: a hugely important aspect of Tolkien's life because, you know, we know biographically that his mother Mabel became a Catholic and therefore that then, you know, Tolkien was was raised as a Catholic. But we very easily just sort of skate past that. And there's two key points here. One is that Tolkien himself was actually a convert, because he was eight years old when his mother became a Catholic. And for one thing, in the Catholic Church at that time, eight years old was considered to be over the age of reason. So he was not sort of grandfathered in, to to (laughs) sort of use the awkward phrase, with his mother. He was considered as needing to make his own decision to be received as an adult, which would have been when he had his first Holy Communion and Confirmation, which for him would have been just before his 12th birthday. So he had to make a conscious decision, am I going to participate in this? Am I going to continue in the faith that my mother has taken up? And it wasn't automatic. It was by no means a given that he would do that because one of the aspects of Mabel's conversion was that in that context in 1900, it was socially, culturally just disastrous for an England to become a Catholic. It was absolutely a a minority. It was socially disadvantaged. People would lose their jobs. Um, People would, you know, lose their social status. You know, his, his mother, both sides of her family said, no, we won't have anything to do with you. They cut off any financial support, attempting to pressure her to come back into the Anglican fold. And this was absolutely typical of the time. This is a story that was repeated time and time again with converts, especially convert women who were vulnerable in that way to pressure from their family. It was absolutely the norm for families to pressure these women to come back to becoming Anglicans. They would even, in many cases, go to court to try and take away the children um, and you know, give them into the care of, you know, say, uncles or aunts. So that was, again, a live possibility. Mabel had to face the fact that her in-laws and her parents might go to court to take her boys away from her And that if they did, in that time, there was a pretty good chance that they would have succeeded because the courts were recognized as being biased in favor of their Protestant family members. Remember, Anglicanism was the state religion. It was the establishment, still is, but certainly it was a very strongly felt establishment at that time. And indeed, you know, when Mabel died, there was some talk in the family of trying to take the boys and put them in a Protestant boarding school they didn't but it was it was a possibility and one of the things that came up very interestingly in my research is that it showed what a dynamic figure mabel was hmm. and this has not been previously appreciated we don't know all the reasons why you know or even directly why she became a catholic but i was able to trace out that she was probably attracted by the high church anglican um, oxford movement because there are some interesting hints of that in her life. And then from there, she's in Birmingham, which is where John Henry Newman, the former Oxford movement, you know, big man, came after he became a Catholic, he became a priest, he came back to England, he founded the Birmingham Oratory. And so Birmingham was a place where there was a lot of outreach to Anglicans from Catholics who were sympathetic, who understood Anglicanism. So this is a context in which it wasn't, you know, a sharp line of like, you terrible <laughs> Anglicans and-, and here are <laughs> weak Catholics. There was a real sense of, well, come over, you know, come over and join us. And I think that helps to explain something of why Mabel might have been interested in this, because at any rate, she was actually received at St. Anne's in Alchester Street, which is where Newman's oratorian started out. So she's already got a connection with the oratorians. She moves around to a couple of different parishes. You know, there's some various reasons why she why she did that, I think. But ultimately, she ends up at the Birmingham Oratory. And that was a very savvy choice because the oratorians were almost all converts. They understood the change. And it was a huge change. I mean, especially at that time, English language liturgy to Latin liturgy, married clergymen, celibate priests, um, different devotions, all of that on top of massive social pressure to stop being one of those low-class Catholics and come back to the Church of England. So she goes to where she has support. And the oratorians in particular were known in Birmingham for being supportive of convert women, indeed protecting them if they, you know, had to attempts to seize their children by the Protestant family. So Mabel coming to the oratory was a really savvy move. And I think especially we can see that it was a deliberate move because she could have gone to say St. Chad's Cathedral, beautiful building. Now the oratory today is a spectacularly beautiful building, but when Mabel went there at the beginning, it was just a shabby brick building with a with a secondhand tin roof it was nothing to look at. So she didn't go there for the beauty of the building because it was just a shabby, dowdy old building. She went there because the oratorian fathers could help her, support her, and help her sons. So I, I came out of this research with a, a really a strong admiration for Mabel as a, a really strong woman, knowledgeable in her faith, You know, knowing that she needed to get the support. And she went and she got it. Good for her.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree a thousand percent. Mabel's determination is really quite awe-inspiring, particularly since you know, as you mentioned, the the parishes that she's now going to are not the prettiest thing in the world, and and there were more aesthetically pleasing options outside of the Catholic Church. But she was relentless in both finding a parish home for her and her sons, and also making sure that her sons were catechized and taken care of, and particularly since that she would die early. That was definitely wise, given that these oratorians would effectively take over the lives of the Tolkien boys acting in loco parentis. Having grown up in England, I, I certainly felt a remnant of the prejudice against Catholics. It wasn't that strong, but from time to time, you'd definitely get the impression that, well, you're not, re- you're not very patriotic, are you, if you're willing to go with a church from Rome? Why not go for a good British church? Do we know that whether or not Tolkien experienced much prejudice as a Catholic throughout his life?
0: Well, we know that he was aware of, of anti-Catholic prejudice. Um, I don't know of any specific instance where, where he felt it, but he recounts some instances. Um, there's one from when he was much, much later. He was an Oxford News professor and he had a friend dining at a high table. And next to him he has one of his other colleagues saying oh well you know it's a, it's a good thing they had so and so for you know elected as a, as a rector of this of this um college because you know otherwise they might have had the other guy and and he's a catholic it would have been disastrous <laughs> and he's they're just talking about this just blatantly at the high table about how disastrous it would be to have a catholic as you know as the rector of the college how Utterly normal, and you know this would be, and, and of course Tolkien sitting right there, like, okay, yeah, okay, great.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna name an orc after you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think that kind of atmosphere um, is probably what he experienced on a regular basis. Not overt prejudice, because by the time I mean, he was he was such a brilliant man from a very early age that i think as soon as he got to oxford you know he was winning people over by just the quality of his mind and by his extroverted personality um by his sociability and yeah you know, yeah yeah and he's also a catholic that's like yeah but okay whatever we can we can get along with that so i i don't think that he faced a lot of problems but he would always have had that kind of You know the snide comments or the or the thoughtless comments that kind of thing and just always the feeling of not being part of the establishment and that was a very very big deal all the time that he was um, a professor at oxford there were a grand total of four four professors total him and three others who were catholics um that is people holding professorial chairs And each one of those men was the first to hold that chair as a Catholic since the Reformation. Hmm. So for him and his colleagues in Oxford, all he had to do was look at the lineage of his own professorial chairs to know that it was a new thing to be accepted here. And I think there would always have been a sense of kind of provisionality about it. Like, well, we let you in at last, (laughs) but you're you know you're here on what's the word i want
1: Bard time <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're, we're we're allowing you graciously to stay but don't don't, don't take push it, for it.
1: <laughs> yeah don't push it
0: um and i think that that is the kind of atmosphere that makes it very easy to become more private in your faith to downplay mm-hmm. it to understate it and so it was remarkable to me when I discovered in my research that he did anything but downplay it. And, and this was a genuine surprise for me because this is not something that, had, that I had ever thought before. He was very prominent as a Catholic professor. The Catholic Herald, which is one of the major um, Catholic newspapers, published for a stretch of years a le- lecture lists where they listed all the Catholic lecturers in Oxford on any given term. And presumably this is because there were so few of them that they wanted Catholic students, of whom there were very few, to know to whom could they go if they wanted some mentoring from a fellow Catholic. Because the university is, it's the Anglican establishment. Where do, I t- where do I go if I want to talk to a Catholic um, Don? And Tolkien is the only one who appears in every one of the extant lists. There are others who appear many times, but he's the only one who's always there. Now, it's been remarked on elsewhere in Tolkien's scholarship that he was very diligent as a lecturer, exceptionally diligent, not most brilliant lecturer in the world, um although I think that is slightly overstated. But he was exceptionally diligent in providing series of lectures year in, year out, above and beyond what was required of him. And a lot of that had to do with his responsibility to his field, you know, as a linguist and as a as a literary scholar. But I think, that it also had something to do with his responsibility to the Catholic undergraduates. That he needed to be present. He needed to be visible and say, here is somebody, here's a co-religionist that you can go and listen to his lectures and see. Yes, Catholics can do this and you can come and and, and talk. And of course, he was also involved with the Newman Society um, in Oxford. He was involved with the Catenians. He went to lots of events. Um, there's a lot that he did that I was able to track down by spending many hours in newspaper archives. And it paints a picture of him consciously, deliberately, year after year, being visible as a Catholic in a context where it would probably have been more comfortable if he'd been a little less visible.
1: And how did his faith change over the years? You've described a a Tolkien that is out there as as a prominent Catholic. Was his faith always so active? Because he had to weather many difficulties and tragedies like the death of his mother, Baldor uh, One. <laughs>
0: well, that that is another fascinating thing that I turned up. And the evidence has been in front of us all the time, but I don't think we've looked at the letters carefully enough. He really had undulations. He had ups and downs in his faith. It was not by any means a static picture. And I think it can be easy, and indeed I was guilty of this, to kind of project back onto Tolkien. This strong faith of his mature years, and sort of assumed that it was all steady, even no difficulties. But that wasn't the case. So he had a strong faith as a young man at the Oratory. Uh, was well catechized, well taught. Um, he had nothing but praise for his upbringing there. He called it the, the home in the highest. <laughs> his his growing up in the Oratory, and then he goes to Oxford Exeter College for his undergraduate studies, and he he kind of slacks off. By his own reckoning, now he doesn't leave the faith, um, but he, by his own admission, is slack. He's slack about going to mass. And, you know, he's he just sort of lets it go into an ebb, and then he he revitalizes that when um, he reconnects with Edith, and they're engaged, and he's now he's now motivated, and he he picks it up again. Um, and one of the interesting things in my research too is that I I looked at what was going on, and. Oxford and the Catholic scene during that slump period. And it was very interesting to find that the chaplaincy, which was supposed to be supportive of Catholic undergraduates like Tolkien, was during his first year and a half in disarray. And there really wasn't the support network that, that he ought to have had. Uh, so we can see biographically, he goes to Oxford and he's sort of left his own devices more than than maybe he would have wished even himself. Has a bit of a slump pulls himself together. Then he goes off, he fights in the great war, but the war itself didn't challenge his faith. He emerges from it with a stronger faith, with a a deeper faith. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that he had already confronted problems like, why do the people we love die? (laughs) Hmm. He, He had had to face that before. And Catholic teaching and preaching of the early 20th century was a lot more forthright about suffering um, than, than it is today, to be honest. So in his, the teaching that he got growing up and in the mentoring that he got from his spiritual fathers at the oratory, helping him come to terms with the fact that he was an orphan. He was, I think, pretty well grounded to go into the war and recognize this is terrible, this is a horrific experience, but to retain his faith in God. But interestingly, he goes into a slump after the war. There's a stretch which may have been as long as 10 years. We don't know from the dates, it's not entirely sure, but from several years to as long as 10 years, Tolkien says himself, I almost ceased to practice my religion. And what exactly does it mean I almost ceased to practice? Well, we don't know, but it probably means that at the least he wasn't going to Mass very often. He wasn't frequenting the sacraments. He probably wasn't having an active prayer life. Whatever it was, it was a definite barren stretch for him. And it goes on um, really until he gets back to Oxford and it starts to, to pick back up again. And one of the things that I think is a factor in this was belatedly the great war because in the war the soldiers had a very disrupted experience they went to mass if they could when they could they were given dispensations from fasting they were you know given dispensations from going to receiving the sacrament regularly because it was it was the war and presciently one of the chaplains of that time wrote that he was concerned that the Catholic soldiers would have a hard time readjusting the civilian life, that they had gotten used to a kind of unevenness and and scattered structure that they would have a hard time coming back to the regular routine of Sunday mass and regular confession. I think that that's probably what happened to Tolkien. The experience of being demobilized was actually much more unsettling to him than the war itself hmm. So he has mm-hmm. this long stretch, you know he he emerges from it, but I think he comes out of it stronger, humbler. <laughs> Throughout the rest of his adult life, you know, he, he has no illusions about himself. He doesn't puff himself up as being this great pious figure. Uh, I think he was well aware that he had his faults and his failings, and he was doing his best, but he could fall down in it too.
1: So you have the seismic event of the Great War, but Tolkien also lived through one of the most important events in at least recent Catholic history, namely the Second Vatican Council. Would you mind just explaining what was this church council and what was Tolkien's response to it?
0: Oh, this is an enormous question.
1: <laughs>
0: well, the Second Vatican Council, in sort of in a nutshell, um, was a global council of the Catholic Church to reconsider and re-articulate the church's approach to the modern world. And some of the results of the council were quite significant shifts in the way that Catholics worshipped and lived their lives. Eventually the liturgy was radically changed, the entire structure of the liturgy, and you know, it went from Latin to being in the vernacular. And there were a lot of changes in just devotional practices and even architecture of churches and things like that. And it's an interesting, very, very interesting question because it's often assumed that Tolkien just hated the whole thing. That, you know, he hated the council and the horse that rode it on and that's not quite the case and it's it's a very nuanced question he very very strongly disapproved of the change from latin to the vernacular in the mass he hated that he thought it was a bad idea um he was sad he was grieved he was miserable he loved latin he was very unusual in that he actually spoke latin i mean he he knew latin better than most priests he was a linguist. He he savored the flavor and texture of language, so it wasn't even just a nostalgic thing for him. He just loved the language. So it was a a terrible blow when it was shifted to the vernacular. An important thing to realize is that there wasn't a simple shift from what's now called the traditional Latin Mass to what's now called the Novus Ordo. It, it, no, it was much more complex. It was in stages, and. First, there was effectively the the old mass, but just with parts of it in English, and then with all of it in English, and only in 1969, just a few years before Tolkien's death, only as late as that did the structure change to what is now the Novus Ordo. So Tolkien's reaction to the changes in the liturgy are m- not just a question of he didn't like the Novus Ordo because he he didn't even encounter the Novus Ordo until only a few years before his death. He's mostly objecting to the change in, in the language. So it's interesting to, to look at that and realize that he, he's reacting to the language. He, he's sad that Latin has been lost. He's also not happy about the English translations that are being used. And honestly, the translations were pretty terrible. So he had a point. <laughs> um, so he's reacting here partly as, a, as an artist, as a literary artist, um, and he's sad. But he kept on. He kept on going to mass. Um, he said the only thing they have to do is to pray. And it's interesting to know, even with regard to the liturgy, that towards the end of his life, indeed after the Novus Ordo, the new mass came to effect. At his age and with his, you know, mobility limitations as a, as an elderly man, he could easily have not not gone to mass and just had the local priest bring him communion to fulfill his requirement. But he went to Mass. He took a taxi to St. Anthony of Padua every Sunday. And I've been there. There's a photograph of St. Anthony in the photo gallery. St. Anthony's is a perfectly plain modern church. Tolkien actually donated a great deal of money to help build it. It was a church where the ordinary Novus Ordo, the new Mass, was being said. It was not a particularly traditionalist kind of place. So he didn't make any attempt to try and carve out a little retro nostalgic niche for himself. He went to Mass with his neighbors, uh, and I think that is a really striking, a striking thing.
1: Now, one thing that people do when they start learning about Tolkien as a Catholic is that they then look at his legendarium and start seeing parallels and imagery uh, that's there. And you, you point out a few of these in your book, um, particularly related to his devotion to Our Lady. Would you mind just sharing just a little bit about that?
0: Yes, that's an interesting question. There's so much that one one could say. And I think the first point is that Tolkien was very clear that the, the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory of the Gospels. It's just not. And he could, he could get quite irritated um, if people <laughs> tried to make it that way. But he also got very irritated if people tried to imagine that it, it was unrelated to Christianity. And he said, no, 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 this is the God of Middle Earth is the one God. It's, you know, God of our planet. So the way that we see these Christian themes and these Catholic images in his writings is not so much in overt or direct things, but in the fundamentals and in the nuances. One of the aspects is the themes of mercy and pity and providence that work through the whole book. They're so important. Um, I mean, Tolkien in one of his letters comments that the scene of Frodo on the ring at Mount Doom is actually a a meditation on the line of the the Our Father and lead us not into temptation. I mean, that's a pretty direct theological connection he's making, infused into the story at a very, very deep level, not a direct allegory, but he's meditating in this, he's digested it. One of the things that I found most interesting is the way that Tolkien explains that the whole concept of eucatastrophe, the unexpected happy ending that we get in The Lord of the Rings, we get in The Hobbit, that this is rooted in the gospel. His vision of it is that the reason that we have this movement of the heart, this lifting of the heart at the happy ending, is that it's a sort of participation in the cosmic happy ending of Christ's resurrection, which he believed was a, a historical event that had mythic resonances. So these eucatastrophes, these these unexpected, you know, happy endings in the face of seeming despair, they work perfectly well on a narrative level with no awareness of the Gospels whatsoever. But for Tolkien, they were deeply rooted in the resurrection of Christ. That's what to him was the motive power for it that's the joy that he sees coming at the at the end of it and we even get some little hints of that in for instance the way that the eagles are the instruments of, of view catastrophe in the hobbit and lord of the rings tolkien would not have missed the fact that the eagle is the symbol for saint john the evangelist who of the of the fourth gospel and also a saint whom Tolkien considered to be a particular patron. So when you have the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming, and you know there's a happy ending on the way, that's a little nod at a very sort of subtle level that this is a Christian story at its fundamentals.
1: Mm. Well, moving on from his fiction, was there much overlap between Tolkien's scholarly work and his faith?
0: Well, there are some very interesting things, one of which is that he he translated a book with a Bible, which is little known and really interesting. He did a translation of the book of Jonah uh, for the Jerusalem Bible in the 1960s. And this is fascinating. Um, well, it's interesting, first of all, because he was he was asked to do it um, by the editor of the whole volume, who loved Tolkien's style in The Lord of the Rings so much that he would have loved to have had the whole Bible translated by him, <laughs> but no chance. So he asks him to do the Book of Jonah, um, and he does. And miracle of miracles, Tolkien finishes it on time. I mean, hold on. <laughs> What the heck? This is astonishing. <laughs> um, and it's a short book, but it's, it's a marvelous little translation. And it's full of little Tolkienian touches, such as the fact that he translates one line as Jonah's down at the bottom of the sea, and he's at the roots of the mountains, and the roots of the mountains is a phrase that the savvy reader will pick up from The Hobbit. That's mm-hmm. where Gollum lives. <laughs> and he got that phrase from William Morris. Uses it in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and he brings it into his translation of Jonah. So there's a little bit of Lord of the Rings in uh, the book in the Jerusalem Bible <laughs> because of because of that.
1: How much Hebrew did he know when he was starting that project?
0: He didn't. He didn't. So the Jerusalem Bible was a a work of translating from French. Uh, There was a French edition that had gone to the originals, but the recognition was that in English Catholic culture, they simply didn't have enough scholars who could do that work. So if they were going to have a good English translation, they they had to just use the French translation. So Tolkien did look up some Hebrew, you know, to kind of get a sense of what he was translating, but he didn't learn it as as a full language to do it. He was working from the French. He did spend an inordinate amount of time um, trying to translate the name of the um, the the plant that grew up over Jonah, um, but in the end, they didn't even use his word that he chose. They used bro plant." I mean, yeah. <laughs> but one really interesting thing about this translation too is that it's in surprisingly modern prose, and it uses for speaking of God "you" not "thee" and "thou." And this was a decision that was taken editorially by the, by the main editor. But it's one that the editor took in consultation with Tolkien. He asked Tolkien's advice. Should we use you or should we use, you know, thee and thou? And Tolkien came down on the side of saying, use the modern usage, use you. And he admitted that he liked the older usage, but the better one for the translation would be the more modern one. Wow. And And I think it's interesting because the editor asked him for his advice. If Tolkien had wanted to, I bet he could have convinced him to go with <laughs> the and thou, but he didn't. And it confounds expectations. And I think this is so important because Tolkien loved the past. He loved medieval history and ancient history and medieval literature. He loved it, but he did not view it nostalgically as he wanted to just live there. He was a man of the modern world. And he could bridge the past to the present precisely because he wasn't just living in the past, pretending that the present doesn't exist. And I think he knew very well, you have to be able to communicate to your audience. And his, his language in Lord of the Rings, I mean, he uses archaic language very skillfully. He doesn't use it for the whole book. And we have the hobbits who are the most modern, you know, prosaic characters. And they're so important. They have that freshness. They bring us into the story. So he's very deft in how he uses archaic language. He's not just sort of enshrining it. He's using it where it serves his purposes. And that includes, in translating the Bible, how can we communicate this to a modern reader? Well, I love the old language, but the modern language is what's going to work better.
1: Hmm. Wow. Well, as we draw to a close, Proverbs two six says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. So now we've reached towards the end of Talking Story, I want to go back to the beginning, because. Along with the text about Mabel, my favorite part of your book was when you were talking about the father figures that Tolkien had in his life, because his dad died when he was very, very young. But God seemed to provide him with father figures along the way, and many of them were Catholic fathers, i.e. priests. And I had known about Father Francis, that Father Francis took guardianship of Tolkien and his brother when his mother died. But he was one member in a very large cast of men who took Tolkien under his wing. So as we wrap up, would you mind just talking a little bit about some of the father figures in Tolkien's life?
0: Well, this brings us very happily back to the Birmingham Oratory, that home in the highest, which is so absolutely essential for understanding Tolkien's formation. Because it, as you said, David, most people know about Father Francis of the oratory, but the oratory was a community. There were you know, probably about 20 different um, priests in the oratory at any given time. Many of them very young and dynamic. You know, there were younger priests. Father Francis happened to be exactly the same age as Tolkien's fathers would have been. They were born within a couple of weeks of each other in the same year. So Father Francis becomes, Tolkien literally calls him his second father. He truly becomes a beloved father to him. And in a very meaningful way in that even after he no longer had responsibility for him as his guardian when Tolkien turned 21, he retains the connection, he ensures that there's a relationship with his, his spiritual son, um, and he becomes basically a spiritual grandfather you know, to Tolkien's own children. It's a really beautiful part of, of the story of Tolkien's faith that, that I'm glad to have highlighted a bit in the book. But in that, in that oratory, there are all the other learned fathers, as Tolkien calls them. Um, there was Father Vincent Reed and um, Father Robbie Eaton. And um, there are all these different men who would have been mentors to him, and some of whom became lifelong friends. You know, Father Vincent Reed, for instance, became a friend. He went on holiday with him in, in Cornwall as a, as a young man. And they have these ongoing connections. So he had many different role models of of men with different interests, and who were interested in books, um, who were very outgoing often. These were people with, with lots of dynamic personality. Hmm. And I think the father figures, there are two father figures behind them as well that we, we have to note. And one of them is John Henry Newman, who is the founder of the Birmingham Oratory and ends up, I think, having a, a really sort of grandfatherly influence on Tolkien. There's lots of little ways in which the Newman connection continues on into Tolkien's life and, and influences him. And we have certainly would have had him as an example at the oratory. He was our cardinal. That's how the Oratorians call him, our cardinal. Um, he founded this house and he was well known to that community. I mean, Father Francis had served as Newman's personal secretary. He knew him well. And many of the other fathers had been trained by him and had been working with him. So he was only a little step away from knowing Newman firsthand. And then behind Newman, there's Philip Miri, who was the 16th century Italian priest who founded the Congregation of the Oratory, which is has oratories worldwide. And it's that oratory that Newman chose to bring to England and establish. And Oh, my word, I could go on at great length about this. I'll have to be concise. But oratory and spirituality is very distinctive and very, very formative on Tolkien. Philip Neary had a character that was very joyful. He was called the Apostle of Joy. He loved music. He emphasized the enjoyment of music and the enjoyment of friendship. All of this influenced the way that the oratory you know, had that environment. And he had two particular emphases in his teaching, which were humor and humility. And these have a really profound shaping effect on Tolkien. And we don't have enough time to go into it, but I do explore that at, at some length. In I think we can really see a fundamental stamp of the spirituality of, of Philip Neary in the form of humor and humility in particular on Tolkien. And that actually brings us to another connection with his legendarium, because the hobbits are really very emblematic of that spirituality of of Philip Neary, of the oratory. They embody humor and humility. They bring humor into the story. They're the the characters who bring the comic relief, like Mary and Pippin. And they're literally the most humble. They're, They're the closest to the ground. They're the little people. And he praises them as that. And Tolkien Tolkien's refers the hobbits as embodying that, that sense of humility that he refers to that God will, will lift up the humble.
1: Dr. Holly Ordway, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: <laughs> well, my pleasure.
1: And I will also add one of the wonderful connections with St. Philip Neri is actually to be found in Tolkien's monogram. I'm not going to tell you how or why, but uh, read the book and you'll find out. As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can find out more about you and pick up a copy of Tolkien's Faith, a Spiritual Biography?
0: Well, for me, they can go to my website, hollyordway.com, to get a copy of the book. You can get it on Amazon, where they also have a Kindle version of it, uh, or you can go directly to my publisher. You go to wordonfire.org slash Tolkien, you will find the book, and I hope people will enjoy it.
1: And at the date of recording, I got an email last night telling me that mine has just shipped. So I am very excited. (laughs) Thanks again to Dr. Holly Aldway for coming on the show. Thanks to our audio engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to all of our top tier supporters, James, Matt1, Matt2, Matt3, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. Thank you all for listening. And we pray for our listeners every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and be sure to accept the next adventure offered to you by a wizard at your door. And please join us again next time when we'll continue going further up.
0: And further in. Cheers. Cheers.